Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sabine and Matt, and we all together host our holiday spectacular episode to wrap up 2022. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. But of course, today, we're going to be doing our holiday spectacular and wrapping things up for 2022. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Bufton and Sabine Elchidiak. As you all probably know, Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. He's also this podcast's executive producer. And Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is the educational programs manager. And of course, she's the producer of The Curious Task as well. Matt and Sabine, welcome back, both of you, to The Curious Task. You know, you've both been on in many different ways, either individually or together, but here we are again uh, at the end of 2022 to do what seems to be our annual tradition of the uh, wrap-up episode for the year, or the holiday spectacular, as we call it this year. So e- either way, welcome. Welcome, guys. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I love talking about things, especially at the holidays, so I'm very happy to be here. That's the place to do it on the podcast. So let, let's jump in, as we sort of know, and it probably is not a secret to our listeners. This is uh, There's some structure to these episodes when we do them together, but it's not necessarily following a tight script by any means. So we'll just see how things go. Why don't we make our first stop on this little bus here to talk about basically how the year went for the podcast and just all things sort of curious task in general. I think we, we had a lot of great guests. You know, well, maybe we'll talk about our favorite episodes later, but, but just in general, how, how are you guys feeling about the kind of things we discussed and how things went this year? I think it was a really fun year for the podcast. We went out of our uh, box a little bit. Um, we always try to do that every year, but this year particularly, we did some really interesting, different feeling things. Uh, for example, uh, I did a bunch of episodes as the host. That was really fun. I really enjoyed that. Uh, that was a bit different than what we usually do. That was for like five weeks straight. So uh, usually you'll have like a guest host like once in a blue moon, but that was like five episodes. That was pretty cool. Um, we also did some interesting stuff. Like recently we did an episode with uh, Christy Horpital and it was completely different. Like we both read a book and we discussed it and we talked about how it intertwined with liberalism. Uh, it's a little bit different than the regular format that we uh, usually have on the podcast. So I think we're experimenting um, and they're all, they've all been pretty successful experiments. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to experiment. And sometimes that means you fail, but it's even better when you don't fail. <laughs> so it's been great, like being able to expand on our format and change it up a little bit here and there. And uh, it come out really nicely uh, as an episode. So this year, for me, has been uh, a year of interesting, different episodes. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I actually want to ask you a bit more about your experience hosting. But before we get into any specifics, I'll just make sure we don't sprint by the general discussion without stopping with Matt, of course. Matt, just general thoughts, feelings, comments, critiques. How, how do you think the year went in Curious Taskland? Well, I thought it was really cool that we did our first uh, co-branded episode, or Spio, uh coordinated release uh, episode with another podcast um and i couldn't be more happy that we did it with a podcast except that it was econ talk uh which is one of my favorite uh, podcasts has been for, for a long time i think many curious task listeners will be familiar with econ talk with russ roberts but if you're not go check out their episodes but uh but this spring we had the really cool opportunity to uh, record an interview between you and russ uh on the topic of education and then release that simultaneously, both on our channel and on the uh, Econ Talk channel. And not only was that really cool as being a big fan of Russ and Econ Talk, uh, but also we know brought in a lot of new listeners. So I thought that was probably the highlight for me of, uh, of 2022 in podcast. Yeah, I guess I guess that was a first for us, right? So being said, there's a year for, there's a year of a few firsts this year, and I guess that was a first. Now that I think about it, it was obviously great. I mean, I was definitely distracted by the fact it was Econ talk itself and shout out to russ roberts of course but then i guess it not only was that our first time doing anything with econ talk but it was just our first time doing anything like that in general so that was pretty cool um and sabine i just want to get back to you so like how, how did you feel about hosting the curious task are you looking forward to doing more it was really fun i really enjoyed it i'd love to do a few more 
but I do have to admit that Alex is the one true host of the Curious Task. I thought I thought you did a great job. I thought you did a great job. What he does, he's a wonderful host. Um, I could never dream of taking his place, but I did really enjoy my time, and I was lucky enough to speak with um, everybody that I spoke with was a friend of mine. So it made that a lot easier for me. Um, I didn't have to go in blind not knowing how the conversation was going to go because I, I've spoken to them about these topics before. Other people I've, I've I've been lucky enough to sort of discuss things with in the past, um, either virtually or in person. So it was really nice to just sit down and kind of just have a conversation with a friend and see how it goes. And they ended up being pretty good episodes, if I do say so myself. Really enjoyed them. Um, yeah, it was really fun. I'd yeah. definitely do it again. No, I, I think I think you did a great job, as I was saying, and I think I really enjoyed listening to the conversations. I mean, obviously, it's always nice to get a, a little bit of a break, but be, but beyond that, I actually really enjoyed the dynamic you had with the guests and what was actually discussed, because I think no, just, you know, in any conversation, a lot of it depends on just who's having it. So it was, I think that was great. It was, it was a great addition to our episode list. And I guess executive producer officially, Matt Matt Bufton. What do you think? Are we? Is this is Sabine hosting something else? Is <laughs> that we're going to continue? It was a first this year. Uh, now that you're both in the exact same virtual room, I maybe stir the pot, or maybe there's nothing to stir. Maybe you're oh maybe gosh. maybe it's just a thumbs up from the exec producer. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it seemed like it worked out well. Uh, you know, I, I know Sabine enjoyed it. I know the podcasts were good. And I'm relieved there's not an internal power struggle that's going <laughs> to uh, result now in the behind the scenes in the Curious Task where you guys wrestle back and forth behind the uh, uh, over the microphone. Uh, so I think it's uh, an exciting development. Yes. And I believe, was it at the tail end of last year or was it actually in this year, Sabine? Because you're better at this uh, than me. But I think we also <laughs> added a new person to the Curious Task team by way of producing and editing, right? That's right. Uh, Eric Sagan is with us now. He's um, a technical producer, I might call him. Uh, he does a lot of our technical production work, and he's been really great. It's been so nice having an extra person on the team. Um, yeah, he's great. Yeah, someone else to help sort out the mess that we sometimes create in production. So as always, thank you very much, Eric. He is, of course, going to be listening to this, so he gets to hear it in in uh, post-production <laughs> and live when his name goes out. Thank you very much to Eric. So I think that's that's good on on the podcast for unless anyone else has anything really burning to talk about as I'll as I said we'll, we'll probably get back to favorite episodes later but I just want to move us on to so we talked about the podcast in 2022 seems as part of our annual tradition in our wrap up episode we also just talked about how how the year went in general for all things uh liberalism all things freedom if you will so why don't we go around the table and talk about that I mean we'll start with Sabine uh 2022, very interesting year in many different ways. I mean, pick an angle and run with it. How do you feel 2022 was for freedom and all, all things liberalism? Gosh, like what even happened this year? It was just a lot. <laughs> I, can't, I feel like the last two or three years have just become one large year for me. I don't even know what happened when anymore. <laughs> it's just sort of all crushed into this big blob of events. Um, but I think some of the standouts for me are... There's two standout things in my mind when I I think back at the year. But before I get to that, it's important that we touch on the fact that the Ukraine-Russia war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is still ongoing. Um, And that's really unfortunate. People are still dying. People are still being bombarded. And that's um, a huge loss for liberalism. Uh, And and I I just don't know what the future holds uh, on that. Um, I don't know if Matt wants to talk about that more later or if he has some ideas on that. But personally, I just don't know what the future holds on on that front. Um, Two standout things for liberalism for me. Um, I think it's sort of the changing conversation around free speech. Uh, The conversation about free speech has been at a fever pitch for several years now. I mean, it's never been. I won't say like. For the first time in a long time, we were talking about free speech again. Like, free speech is always a topic. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit different now in in, in the social media aspect uh, with the takeover of Twitter from Elon Musk. And he came in saying, like, oh, I'm like this freedom fighter who's going to, like, you know, bring free speech back to the platform. And then it kind of disintegrated and that didn't actually happen. As we're seeing now, it's actually becoming even more suppressive. <laughs> in many aspects unfortunately um i think that was an in, that's an interesting conversation to have within liberalism and like the way that we want to see free speech um reflected in social media platforms i think that's an interesting conversation to have uh the other thing that has to do with uh, liberalism that happened this past year is the uh protests in iran uh where we had these extremely brave women um you know and and their ally men 
uh, in that country, go into the streets and and speak out against the murder of one woman um, who was killed by the regime because she didn't follow the headscarf rules. Uh, so that was a huge uh, development. And we're seeing now a push and pull in the regime to change the rules to maybe eliminate the police force or the the morality police, as they call them, the force that goes into the streets and and enforces religious morality on uh, average people. Uh, I say average people because they're not really enforced on the upper crust of society. It's mostly on on the um, on the average person, uh, particularly the average woman. So uh, for a while there, we saw the disintegration of the morality police but then they're back now so it's iran is a very difficult place to get information out of so um it's hard to understand what's going on a lot of the time but now we know that there is that conversation happening at least and that's a huge development for a place like iran where that conversation isn't allowed to even be had so the fact that people are going to the streets unfortunately we're hearing reports of women being killed and tortured still to this day yesterday they were talking about one other protester who was arrested and potentially killed so um it's still ongoing but the fact that this is even happening huge huge topic for liberalism mm-hmm. we're on a bit of a roll there so there's a lot of issues to keep in mind maybe we'll get into a few of them in a you know in a little deeper fashion in a second but as we on that roll of sort of our shotgun of issues and things to think about in 2022 matt i'll kick it to you as is there things you agree with Sabine on as far as like that they were the top of your list? Maybe you'd like to add some of your own. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in talking about uh, the Twitter aspect. And I'm probably a horribly qualified person to do this because I actually I don't, I don't have much time for Twitter. Um, I'm pretty happy that it's going to disappear, even though I know that some people carved out little pockets. Uh, well, maybe it's not going to disappear. Who knows? But it seems like it might. And I know, speaking to friends, little pockets of communities they enjoy there. But to me, in general, Twitter just seems like a pretty nasty place um, that uh, that brings out, I think, a lot of cases, the worst of people, you know, just really quick shares of like, look how stupid this other person is. Look how offensive these views are. Um, and I don't pretend to have followed the nuances of the uh, the debates around the, the moderation or censorship or whatever we want to call it that's taking place on Twitter. But Sabine said that it's gotten more uh, repressive uh, in terms of allowing expression uh, in the, I guess it's two months now, it seems like two decades yes. since Elon Musk took over. So what are they doing that's making it you know, even worse than it already was? Uh, so it started the the first thing that I can point to would be the checkmark issue. The fact that like if you if you can pay for a checkmark, which is fine, I don't pay for checkmark. I don't really care. It's a business. You want to sell something? I'm not going to stop you from selling it. Um, but it did start affecting sort of uh, the actual speech. Like the misinformation issue became worse uh, for a little while there, and then they went back on that. Now they're saying you can't really link to other social media platforms. So if you want to like share a story from instagram or facebook or something you can't do that anymore uh you're not allowed to um and then for another thing that happened was he brought back all these very controversial people that were banned for violating the rules written by twitter which twitter is allowed to have rules it is a private company that is allowed to have user r- rules for their users um but you know in this glorious uh, victory for free speech in quotations he brought back all these people that had violated the rules in the past and that's why they were banned only to ban them again <laughs> After a little while, um, because they had violated the rules again in some different way that he didn't like. So it's becoming sort of a whatever Elon Musk feels like kind of place. Um, And then somebody posted like where his jet was going the other day. (laughs) And he got really upset by that. He's like, nobody's allowed to do that anymore. It is a new rule because it inconvenienced him. So um, it's just a very strange place now. It's yeah. kind of like a little fiefdom. Yeah, that's an interesting. Um, <laughs> that one's actually an interesting issue too, because you know the whole thing was, um, you know, his claim. Like, I think actually that one issue where someone posts the location of his jet or where he was traveling kind of like really puts everything into a nutshell. Like anything we could say about this topic for hours actually kind of brings everything into a it comes into a nutshell. I think with that exact issue because basically what he had claimed there is that yeah, that's all fine and good. Someone had this information, but you're actually endangering me and my family. You know, I'm a high profile person, all that kind of stuff. There's the logic, etc. I think that in and of itself 
sort of, you know, really shows everything at play here when it comes to like this quote free speech on a pl- private platform issue. Because like, you know, first and foremost, as you were saying, Sabine, it, it definitely it's a private platform. That's what it is. It's not, uh, you know, a public forum in the sense of like, you know, the classic like, you know, pub- public town square type thing. Um, now, some people say Twitter um, is is sort of becoming sort of a virtual town square. And, you know, there might be some sort of discussion to be had for that, you know, and that's very interesting unto itself. But putting that aside, it is a private platform right now. And as you said, it has sets of rules. People on Twitter, you know, beef pre-Musk have been struggling with all the fine lines and, you know, uh, threading different needles about, okay, like, you know, how far do we let people go until, you know, they cross a certain line and and that it becomes unacceptable, Um, you know, everything you're saying is, is true and it is very much in flux because typical of Elon Musk's many different companies, many things are in flux and sometimes change on a week to week basis. But at the end of the day, he's found certain lines and certain reasoning for those lines in his own mind that people can't cross. Um, if you are a free speech absolutist, um, it, and I'm talking about in like pure principle, like you're a purist, it would seem to me that if you think your free speech absolutism should apply to Twitter, if someone acquired the information of where Elon Musk's jet or where his whereabouts was through a way that was not sort of like a breach of like, you know, a confidence or fraud, like for example, someone didn't hack a mainframe or whatever else, but they simply knew somehow in a relatively kosher way where his jet was going and then posted that publicly one would think if you are a complete free speech absolutist and think those principles should apply on twitter that would be totally fine uh for various reasons um musk didn't think so if you agree with him on that because you know i think there is an argument to be had that says like you know if we if a bunch of people start doing this with all types of high profile people this could be a safety risk and a private company like twitter might not want to be host to that kind of safety risk great but we've still found some lines here. So Musk is starting to play with those now. So that's a, hopefully means Sabine sort of answered Matt's question in a very roundabout way. But that's the kind of fun that's happening on Twitter right now is, is a bunch of different lines in the sand were sort of brushed over. So the lines are no longer there and new ones are being drawn. Um, some of them have eerily similar reasoning to the previous lines that existed just in typical Musk fashion, um, dressed up a different way, set a different way. Or, uh, you know, put to a sort of um, essentially like a a show poll where he makes people think that they're voting for their opinion and then they're going to implement something the next day, that kind of thing. So it's a bit of a circus on there now. And let's not forget that he did ban a bunch of journalists recently that he disagrees with that sort of cover him. Um, He didn't like the coverage of him, so he just banned them. Also, Kathy Griffin, the comedian, because she made fun of him, he banned her. Yeah, and and you're cutting to the chase, basically. It's important that we're clear and accurate about this. Like, you're cutting to the chase, I agree. I think it's stuff that, you know, more or less isn't very favorable to him. He's found a reason to have them banned, uh, him and his team, I should say. Um, But, you know, he does claim that they violated certain things, like, you know, especially, like, the the jet thing, a bunch of them got banned for that, I think, as well, like, to say where his location was and so on and so forth. So, of course, he's claiming that there are legitimate reasons to this stuff and they're violating the rules but yeah i mean at the end of the day i think a lot of people can see that um you know uh, at at the very least what we can say is the correlation is very odd as far as timing and what they're saying about this person and how they get banned so um, and again i will say like as a as the owner of a private company he can do whatever he wants at the end of the day Uh, it's just that he can't go in saying that he's uh, like you know fighting for free speech and then do what he's doing mm-hmm. so it's just a little bit controversial in that way and the way the reason i even brought this up was just so that we could have a discussion about how liberalism even looks at an issue like this because we want to find people who are protecting freedom of speech it's, it's such an important value um but like is this the way to do it uh is it actually harming the conversation more than helping it uh, i wonder what you guys think about that I think when you zoom out in general, whether it's free speech or any issue, I think this is a really like something that I am have a pretty hardcore opinion on is that uh, if you're a liberal or libertarian, the last thing you should be doing is like worshiping anyone. And I've seen in a lot of corners of classical liberals and libertarians that whether it's this name, uh, sorry, another name or Elon Musk, I mean, it's like, folks, like if there's one message for me this year, regardless of what the issue is, just stop that, please. Like this is something I'm very serious about. Like there is no one person that's going to come in and fix everything. You know, there's no good billionaires and bad billionaires. I mean, you know, some of them might be better than others on certain issues and stuff, but like constructing cults of personality around these people, 
um, is bad news. So uh, I don't think Musk, to answer your questions more specifically, Sabine, I mean, like, I think the idea that Musk is supposed to be like the savior of free speech kind of thing uh, through this whole Twitter issue, um, you know, we should really kind of anyone on this issue should sort of bring back their language just down a couple notches from 11 and basically be like, okay, like, will he make things that might improve the climate of discussion on Twitter? That's a decent question. We might be able to talk about that. But the idea that some billionaire moving a bunch of money around and acquiring a platform ultimately, in my judgment, benefit his own reputation and his own sort of ego in many different ways and to like sort of, you know, really rally around somebody and talk about them as if they're a savior on a certain type of issue. That's bad news in general, if you're a classical liberal libertarian um, on any issue. So I don't think people should be doing that with free free speech. And as you've pointed out um, already, there's already trouble immediately in Musk's sort of world as he's tried to cut through a lot of what he views as just crap and clutter and get to simple solutions. And um, I think this is a nice metaphor and a nice, again, in a nutshell story into itself, all these sort of absolutist sort of ideals of, you know, one savior coming along and cutting through the BS and just setting everything right. Um, doesn't work on free speech, doesn't work on other things, corporate law, war, foreign affairs, whatever issue. So bad news in general, absolutism usually in the way to go. I think Jacob Levy talks about that some people have just to switch to a different topic for a sec, the idea that constitution writing is just about if we could only get this one set of rules just perfect, then the world will work itself out. That mentality should is bad unto itself. Same thing with the idea of Musk being a free speech savior. So that's my comment on that. If anybody this year, you know, we're just coming out of the pandemic, we're all getting excited about things. If anyone this year decided that this was the year that they thought Elon Musk was the best guy for space, Twitter, free speech, everything. I just really encourage you to, to, to not feel that way. He's just a dude, just a dude with money doing stuff. And he's not as great as other people with money doing stuff either. So we need to taper that back a bit. There's, that's my Elon Musk rant. No more on this podcast, but I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> well, I, I have an early Christmas present for you, Alex. Elon Musk's reputation, I think, has clearly taken a huge hit in 2022 uh, compared to what it was before. So if you thought that he was sort of you know, overvalued and overrespected, overhyped in 2020 and 2021, uh, then uh, I feel like the general sentiment about Musk has taken a sharp turn uh, towards what you might feel is the correct evaluation of him. So the markets are the, the markets for reputation are correcting themselves. In other words, perhaps you got it. <laughs> there you uh, go. The people that one calls Elon Bros still well, standing by the man. We we can't ever help that. Before, still love him now. <laughs> yeah, we we can't ever help that. Unfortunately, there's always going to be. Well, sure, but that's that's a self defining aspect, right? Yeah. So his biggest fans really like him. That is probably true, and probably by virtue of being like his biggest fans, they're probably unlikely to change their minds on him but it's sort of a general i don't know if anyone like tracks public opinion on elon musk i would bet a huge amount of money that you know public opinion on elon musk is lower now than it was a year ago than it was two years ago maybe that's my bubble but i i would be shocked if that was not the case Mm -hmm. and and all that to say i think just to wrap up that point on my end i'll just say that any business person or anyone with huge assets and wealth and so on and so forth the idea that they're you know uh doing anything in a way that's, you know, because some people try to paint this picture like he's doing it from some sort of altruistic love of humanity perspective in egoless sort of pursuit. Um, if, if any of if anyone sort of goes down that route and starts thinking that's even to some degree true, I mean, I, I think it's uh, very odd to think that, you know, um, that this person is completely detaching sort of their own interests from the things that they're doing. So it's very interesting this year also to watch Elon Musk's political allegiances, who he's, he's hanging out with. It just so happens that although he does talk about, you know, things benefiting humanity or, you know, for the greater good and all that, it just so happens that a lot of what he does, you know, lines up nicely with certain political parties and new business pursuits, new subsidies he's pursuing, moving headquarters from California to the Southern state to one of the Southern states. And all of a sudden you're doing a little bit more right wing talking points just some food for thought there you know people pursuing their self-interest and all that just to bring it back to some basic market uh economic talking points um but uh i guess on another couple issues though just to pivot away from that a bit um we kind of mentioned the pandemic in passing a couple times but i would like to zone in on it a little bit more because unfortunately it's become ubiquitous just in the back of our brains but let's highlight it for a second basically say i think in 2021 in our wrap-up we were a little 
optimistic or I remember having a bit of a discussion about it. we said oh we're we feeling like we're coming out of it in that year and things are going to turn the corner etc I think maybe we're just getting a little too excited that we were allowed to go back into restaurants and things and have some semblance of a, a normal life again but I have to say I think 2022 is a lot better year for getting back to quote-unquote normal if they're you know ever was one I think we were a little too excited in 2021 for that get back to normal because looking back that was a little silly you know uh, just because we're allowed to do a couple more things and people were just a little less scared. But I think 2022 felt pretty normal-ish. I don't know. How, how do you guys feel about that one? I'm definitely not going to agree with you on that one, Alex. And I have to check the tape. I don't I don't feel like I was optimistic a year ago. I wish I had been. I would I would like to be more optimistic than I have been these past couple of years. It's possible I'm remembering um, it wrong. Just just an excuse. Everybody, go go listen to that. Give us more views on that episode. See if I was wrong there. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Drop drop us some quotes in the uh, in the comments. There you go. But um, yeah, no, I, mean, I, I think it's easy to forget that uh, you know the convoy protests in Ottawa were only 10 months ago. That was part of 2022, even though in some sense it feels like long long ago um and although certainly on some fronts uh in terms of the pandemic um you know things have gotten better i think we're going to be dealing with uh you know fallout and impacts from the pandemic for the rest of our lifetime uh and i'm especially concerned about things that we saw about things like the pandemic mm-hmm. uh sorry about the um uh, convoy protest uh which i look at as a case of sort of the cycle of illiberalism so i think you get an illiberal law that says you know you must get vaccinated or the government will impose these penalties on you um, and that leads to uh, a lot of frustration from people who disagree with those decisions. Um, and I would say understandably so, even though I don't agree with a lot of the, the perhaps claims about the reasons why you shouldn't get vaccinated. But I think as a liberal, that's something that you know, is a matter of personal choice and conscience. Uh, I think when the government passes a heavy handed law, you get frustration, you get anger, you get what we saw coming in as the convoy protest, which then is itself is illiberal. You know, it's uh, you know just camping out uh, on the streets of, uh, of a city for a month, causing all sorts of inconvenience to the people who live and work in that area. Um, it's a problem. Uh, you've got to try, I think, you know, if there's any role for government, it's to try and, you know, make it so that streets are passable and people can go about their daily lives. Um, uh, But they clear it through illiberal means, right? They invoke the Emergencies Act, they're freezing bank accounts, they're calling in, uh, you know, riot police and and firing tear gas. Um, And I worry we haven't seen the end of that sort of cycle of illiberalism. Um, And I think that these things will continue to play out. Uh, We will have people on both sides who are very angry, very frustrated, very hurt. And I don't think it's too controversial to say that like almost everybody is from a mental health perspective in a worse place than they were before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I worry this is going to have bad effects for for quite a while to come. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Sabine, anything to add to that point? I think uh, everything Matt said makes sense. Um, I mean, I've tried to go back to normal as much as I possibly can this year because I'm able to. I've been seeing, you know, live performances of shows. I've been going to restaurants. I've been going to concerts. Like, I'm just doing the things that I used to love and enjoy that feel like they happened 100 years ago. (laughs) Um, And I'm doing them again. It feels really good. And it is really good for your mental health to start doing those things again and just feeling some sort of sense of normalcy. But I also try not to forget that it's not over, um, that there is there are those political issues um, that we're still dealing with that Matt mentioned, that we can't really sweep them under the rug because it's going to come back in and sort of bite us eventually. So, uh, you know, it's still a huge issue for a lot of people. So just because I've sort of moved on doesn't mean everybody else has. So it's important to remember that it's still an issue and we still have to deal with it. Um, we can't just pretend like it's not a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still going through the Emergency Act Um you know, uh, commission is it a commission? I don't know what the what they're calling it uh, in in Parliament. So they're they're talking to people. They had the Prime Minister speaking about it. Like, why did you invoke the Emergency Act? I mean, that's a big thing to do. That Emergency Act uh, uh, against the protesters uh, was it? I mean, I'm not going to say whether or not they should have done it. I mean, the the commission's still going. I guess I want to see what they have to say. I'm interested in in their response. Um, and I, I don't know if you guys have a very strong opinion on that. Uh, we had Christine Van Gein recently speaking uh, w- for the ILS, uh, talking about that, what the Canadian Constitution Foundation is doing on that front. I found that talk very interesting. Um, I encourage people to go and check out um, their work on that because it's it's interesting what they're doing and, and the approach that they're taking on, on the Emergency Act um, 
thing, the stuff that's happening right now. So it's still an ongoing issue, uh, even though we are back in restaurants and we're back in, in, in concerts and all of the fun stuff we used to do before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've personally, speaking of mental health, it's also a health issue. Like I personally have long COVID. I'm dealing with that. I've been dealing with that since 2021. I got COVID again this year. <laughs> uh, and not because I was going out, but because I caught it from uh, family members. <laughs> <laughs> who had it when I went to visit them. Right. So uh, it's just like the cycle continues health-wise as well. It isn't just like a political politician. And it's really affected my life in many different ways. Like, um, you know, being able to do certain things that I, I'm used to doing, it's a little bit more limited now. So that's something that I'm also dealing with and that a lot, I know a lot of Canadians and people around the world are dealing with. So that's something else that I try not to forget as well, that people have really slowed down in a lot of aspects of their lives uh, because of that long-term impact that Matt was talking about, mm-hmm. not just mental health, but physical health wise uh, and politically. I guess, I guess as far as 2022, we all caught COVID at least once, right? I think if the tally correctly, right? COVID is over. Yeah, there you go. It's <laughs> Everybody hard. gets COVID. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting, right? But but I do, like, I felt like, I, you know, it's interesting you guys are talking about sort of like the, the after effects, or if you will, or sort of like the, you know, the echo effects of like some of the, especially on the political side, you know, like, I really... I do agree with Matt's point. I mean, I really felt like I lived a normal-ish year this year as far as stuff I was doing, going out, restaurants, I said Like, that kind of personal life stuff felt a lot more normal this year. But it's it feels like, you know, that kind of personal life is now mixed in with, like, a eerily different reality as far as the way politics feels and the way a lot of social things feel. I mean, in Canada, we tend to often be, like, a little quiet and, like, you know, we talk about keep calm and carry on as a poster and a meme and a shirt. Fine, it's overstated. But Canadians sometimes really do embody that attitude in many ways, but it's more like, Sometimes I find like sweeping things under the rug sometimes and they come up. Um, and I think the convoy was sort of part of that something bubbling up. So I agree with Matt. I, I, do, I don't think that kind of thing is over. I, I'm, although I think a lot of people would like, especially in Ottawa, because Ottawa is really great at that, trying to just be over with things, even though they're not. Um, but I, I don't think we've seen the last of that sort of thing. And I think we're going to be dealing with the social and political effects of you know all the things that happened during the pandemic for quite some time. So that, that's, that's quite you know, um, concerning. Um, as far as uh, as far as that goes, and I think you know, to a sort of libertarian liberalism sort of point, I think if you're being a good, if you have a good social conscious, when policy comes into play or the government takes action, um, sometimes we should always be keeping in mind the either unintended consequences or um, you know uh, groups that are statistically in the minority that might be most affected by something. And I think um, regardless if one agrees with a lot of the things um, that some of the convoy protesters talked about and so on and so forth, I think you just can't argue statistically that, you know, again, here we had some policies that came into play that most people sort of shrugged their shoulders about, but clearly a bunch of other people had massive frustrations about, which, you know, doesn't, and, you know, just because they went about it a certain way, uh, whether one agrees or not, doesn't mean that those frustrations themselves are therefore invalidated. So I think um, that's sort of another thing to keep an eye on as we go forward um, in this post-ish pandemic, I guess we could say (laughs) sort of reality is that I think um, a lot of things happened during that time, a lot of powers granted to the government, a lot of exercises of different things Mm -hmm. that we really do need to keep an eye on because, um, you know, I I wasn't too happy to hear about the government and their sort of debrief of their own emergency powers uh, situation during the convoy talk about, oh, well, you know, we we tested out a bunch of new tools, I think was almost, I'm paraphrasing, but this is sort of like a quote, like, you know, there's a bunch of tools at our disposal, we test out some of them, some of them we don't want to use again, some of them might be useful in the future. So anyway, you know, as far as the government is concerned, what a great emergencies act. It's like, well, maybe not so much, right? So we'll, we'll see how that kind of things go. Yeah, and I think it's worth, too, you know, pointing out very much the institutional aspects of, of what's happened, what I think will play out for years to come. It's one thing to say that people are going out to restaurants uh, again, although I suspect that it's, a, you know, different in some ways than it was before, but also look at, you know, what's going on institutionally. So I think the health of the care system um, is, you know, really in serious trouble. Um, we are looking at a case where everyone I know with kids is like terrified of them getting sick uh, because you might have to go and wait six or eight hours uh, in Chio, the children's hospital in uh, in Ottawa uh, to get in. And, you know, the, even the medical professionals are saying, don't go unless you have to, because they're probably going to catch something else while they're waiting in, in line. Uh, I went to the States for the first time in uh, almost three years this fall. And top of my list to do was to load up on medication for children. I was buying Tylenol and Motrin because you couldn't buy it in Canada 
and you could get it in the U.S. This brings to mind stories I've heard of, like visitors from the Soviet Union coming to America in the 1980s and like loading up on things that they weren't able to get. I think we're seeing some real serious institutional dysfunction. Uh, maybe that was there beforehand, and the the pandemic has just sort of you know tipped it uh, over that point of, of no return. Maybe it's being caused by the pandemic. I'm not really sure. But as Canadians, you know, things that we rely on our government to do, whether we think we should or not, uh, include education, health care, the general provision of law and order. And I think all three of those things are going quite poorly right now. And I'm not optimistic that 2023, they're all going to flip back to the way we want them to be. As far as a, a little bit of a silver lining on some of those issues, though, I think that uh, creeping into even some, you know, mainstream sort of casual discussion, whether it's you turn on the radio and just hear like an opinion of such and such mentioned or whatever else, it doesn't even need to be a big feature story on it. It seems like um, on a couple of these issues, healthcare, education, and so on and so forth, um, I've heard a lot of people are sort of it's almost becoming normalized now to talk about well do we even need this kind of centralization in this type of institution or centralization on this type of way to handle this problem whether they're even talking about like private sector or state action uh, a lot of people are starting to talk about more uh, community driven solutions to things uh, decentralization in general um you know i'm i'm sort of reminded way back uh we did a um uh, i forget who it was with um uh, it'll come back to me. Uh, we'll throw it in the episode notes, but we had a, a guest and we were talking about basically the over-medicalization of basically birth um, and how the fact that, you know, it's this whole situation now where people take it for granted in urban centers that if you're going to, you know, uh, if, if you're a woman and you're going to be pregnant and you're going to go give birth somewhere, it becomes this whole medical process at a hospital centralized and so on and so forth. And the, the kind of discussion there, uh, Matt just chatted to me. It was Lauren Hall. Thank you very much. Sorry about that, Lauren, if you're listening <laughs> to any episode. Episodes, but that was a great chat, obviously, because I remember it. And I, I kind of feel the same vibes about uh, a lot of other issues now, too, not just healthcare, but all, you know, obviously education. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast. Um, why are these such big processes with lots of forms to fill out, with bureaus doing things? Why does it have to be such a sort of centralized function of life? But people seem to be resisting that a little bit more, and their brains have at least light bulbed a bit on like, well, does it really have to be that way, right, when it comes to health, education, other issues? So I'm not sure if you've caught the same vibes, but I've heard even, you know, casually talk, casual chats on the radio and talk shows and things like that where people are talking about, like, um, you know, childcare is another one. Sorry to digress again yet further, but people are talking about, you know, does this really need to be a licensed, certified, you know, checked by the government daycare center type thing? How do we get more on the street, in our community type, smaller time daycare providers like our neighbors and things like that. Anyway, anyway, that was a bit of an indirect sort of round, but I'm not sure if you've, you've caught some of the same vibes in conversation, because I have at least, and I consider that sort of a silver lining. People seem to be more interested in these types of things as other things don't work out. Yeah, I, I'm surely seeing some of it. Um, so that is, I think, the best case for optimism is that because of the problems, there is public demand for reform uh, and we may get good reform. But I'm also worried about the inertia, the way that so many people have said of the mindset, of course, we must work our way through the problems with the government healthcare, with more government spending, more government initiatives, more government programs, a change in government, whatever it is. I don't think any of those things are going to work. So if we're able to introduce some more, you know, entrepreneurial, voluntary aspects to a healthcare system that actually takes care of the people who are looking for services, that would be great. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I do like your optimism. Yeah, I think, that, as you said, that's sort of the best case for optimism, if there is any to be had sort of thing. I would agree with that with that sort of framing. Um. Just looking at the clock here, as usual, we, we're always unsure if we're going to spend too much time on one thing or another. But then as we all get going, all three of us, time starts rolling and it just goes. And I'm going to pivot us over to our favorite episode discussions now because we're already way past sort of uh, the halfway point of our episode now. Um, so let, let's, let's, let's jump into that. Um, so let's go around table. Favorite episode or episodes of the year. Let's start with Matt this time because I actually started with Sabine last time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a tough decision. There's a bunch. I mean, I really liked, of course, your conversation with uh, with Russ Roberts. There were some great ones. David Friedman, who's someone I've hoped we could have on the podcast for a long time. I know you're a fan of his, too. This is my way of cheating and mentioning some episodes I thought of picking and didn't pick. But 
If I'm pressed to pick one, I really enjoyed your conversation with Edward Slingerland, professor at University of British Columbia, uh, on his book, Drunk. And the episode title was How, Al- How Has Alcohol Influenced Civilization? As people who know me will know, I'm a fan of craft beer and the cocktail revitalization and all of those things. Um, and listening to a sociological explanation of the role of alcohol in civilization was interesting. I don't think that Professor Slingerland uh, necessarily thinks of himself as a classical liberal, uh, and so he might not have pulled out the threads that I would have in that conversation, but I saw lots of things uh, using alcohol as a way to build trust and community, and these are things that I think as a classical liberal or a libertarian, we think are vital to a you know, well-functioning society. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, had lots of fun little factoids and things like that. And again, the fact that it was about a topic drinking um, that I enjoy, that didn't hurt either. Fair enough. I had a feeling you'd pick that one. Sabine, how about you? Favorite episode or episodes of note? Anyway, you'd like to oh, tackle yeah. that. You know, I can't keep it to one. I'm going to cheat like Matt did and, and mention a couple that are that are strong contenders and then tell you my uh, favorite one. So some strong contenders for my favorite, uh, who was Eleanor Ostrom with Jamie Lemke. Uh, Jamie's really, uh, really good person to talk about this. Um, you know, I love Eleanor Ostrom. I love everything about uh, who, what she stands for and uh, everything that she wrote about. Um, really interesting episode, and you'll learn a lot listening to it. Uh, Why Work to Advance Liberalism with Emily Chamley Wright, I think, was one that really uh, was very inspiring to me. Um, listening to it really made me feel good about the future of liberalism. Uh, sometimes you need that little bit of a punch. <laughs> You know, at times like these, it's nice to just hear somebody be a little bit optimistic about this stuff. And it was really nice to hear her optimism and her sort of idea about the future and and how important the work that um, that the Institute for Human Studies, but also the Institute for Liberal Studies does. Um, you know, she talks about how important it is uh, to do this educational programming uh, and to keep pushing through all of the, the difficult you know, issues uh, that we've been facing in the past few years uh, in liberalism and continue having those workshops, continue having those uh, pro- that, those programming opportunities for especially for young people. So I really like that episode and I think that it's worth a listen. Um, my favorite episode, I have to say, is, and it's not because I hosted it, that's lawyer. <laughs> but my favorite episode was the episode I hosted with uh, Sarah Squire, Can Literature influence liberalism i loved that episode we talked about so many fun things i love talking about books obviously i'm a voracious reader i love to read so does sarah obviously (laughs) um so we had a lot of fun talking about books but it's such an interesting aspect of liberalism because we're so used to talking about nonfiction that we sometimes forget all the great fiction that we can use to teach liberalism and to find these beautiful little nuggets of liberal thought uh, that we may not have uh, thought about before or we may have ignored in the past. So, you know, literature itself, uh, what it, she was talking about, what it is, uh, how do we define literature? Uh, some people might disagree with her definition. I think that's an interesting aspect of the conversation. Um, and from that to we ended up talking about like romance novels and how they've uh, they help advance liberals. And like, it's not something you would think about so interesting such an interesting conversation talking about markets and and you know um, finding value in others and these are all storytelling is so central to the human experience that uh, we sometimes um, as people who are so focused on academia and academic writing forget how important storytelling is Um, and that conversation with Sarah is really important for those people for everybody to listen to because anyone who likes to read which is probably all of our listeners um, but just in particular, people who um, want to use literature as a tool uh, or, or see it perhaps as a tool for learning in liberalism, because there is that implication that literature is very uh, anti-liberal <laughs> um, and it is just simply not true. So I think it's it's a really good episode. And on my end, for me, I say it every year and it's true. You know, every episode is my favorite, uh, you know, because I think you know, we, we all pride ourselves on the fact that we're only trying to produce good episodes here. There are no throwaways. Every guest is, you know, carefully picked. And we, you know, I, I study the content, you know, Sabine, make sure we're scheduling people in that are totally relevant to things we want to talk about. So 
I'd like to uh, thank all of our guests for being on the Curious Task with us one more time. I always do when I'm with them, but it was really great to have everybody on, and I really liked everything we recorded. I would like to highlight two, though, for a couple different reasons. One of them is the one you highlighted, Sabine, uh, Emily Chamley Wright. Um, I thought that was a good episode, specifically the section where we talked about the pillars and the sort of foundational posts of liberalism. I think that was a really good episode to um, remind folks that, um, you know, basically a giant chunk of people who call themselves liberals or classical liberals really view it as like a, a quite, you know, quite a well-rounded set of values and features and things to keep in mind as you're trying to, you know, look at the world in a, in a liberal-esque sort of way. You know, it's, it goes a lot beyond just, hey, like, you know, leave me alone and, you know, you know, leave me alone, don't touch my stuff. And that's that's what liberalism is. I mean, there there are some very sort of thin conceptions of like, you know, libertarianism that kind of are that way. And whether that's good or bad, that, that's a different discussion. But I think like when we're talking about the tradition of liberalism and classical liberalism, how it strains from that and so on and so forth, that I thought she did a very good job uh, as I was prompting her exploring those points to say that this is a very multi-dimensional and dynamic uh, take uh, or her take on it. And a lot of what other liberals feel, I should say, is a very multi-dimensional dynamic take on uh, liberalism. So very well-rounded chat there. I thought that was great. And another one that I wanted to highlight as well it was when I had um, a great chat with uh, Will Claire Roberts. Uh, what was Marx's relation to liberalism was the episode title. And basically, I mean, we got into the exact same kind of stuff that the title sounds like, right? So in the episode note, we have, you know, we got a chance to explore the relationship between the Marxist and liberal conceptions of freedom. And we also explored Marxist thought in that area too. I thought that episode was um, uh, a great uh, reminder unto its, not only was it a great chat, but it was also a great reminder that, you know, um, if you are interested in political theory, uh, f- whether you're coming from, for example, a Marxist angle or a, a liberal angle, th- there's it's always important to read different kinds of thinkers, different kinds of perspectives, and uh, also invite other perspectives and other kinds of thinkers to chat with you about a certain type of topic. Um, you know, we, we do have... You know, frankly, we have the option because, you know, we, we have a great network at the at the Institute for Liberal Studies to reach out to someone who wrote a couple blogs on Marx and have a chat with them about what they think about Marx. Or we could invite uh, Will on, who is actually a, effectively a Marxist scholar. I'm not sure if he'd say exactly he is in those words. I haven't seen him say that specifically, but, you know, he, one of his specialties is Karl Marx. So um, I thought that was a great episode. And if you guys haven't heard it, anyone listening, I encourage you to listen to that because I thought you know, that was very well rounded in the sense we got to hear um, about uh, Will's work, which is awesome. We got to hear some stuff about Marx, which was great. That was a little different. And also in his work himself, he actually kind of explores Marx's relation to liberalism as well and sort of it, where there might be some overlap. And as uh, as Will himself said, where Marx, uh, you know, if you're into Marx's thought and you're thinking about it, where Marx can't follow liberalism too. So figuring out how far Marx can go into liberalism as far as overlap and where that line actually stops is not only important to know in general, but also very interesting, especially if you're coming from a classical liberal perspective or a general liberal perspective. So that episode was great, I thought, on many different levels, not to mention the content itself. So so those were my two. Um and uh, as I said, the time is really rolling here, so I'm, I'm going to move our switch our gear right into sort of the last part we wanted to do here. Um, unless anyone wanted to, actually, I should stop. Unless anyone wanted to add anything about favorite episodes or anything each other said here, but I, I think that pretty well summed up. I think our favorites, right? Yep. Okay, great. We have we have a consensus. We'll move on. Okay, well, l- let's head on to this last bit here. Uh, I think Matt suggested this. Just a l- little bit of fun to end off the year. But before we go to sort of a more formal wrap-up where we, you know, thank everyone and maybe say a little message, the last chunk here. Matt, you had an idea. You, I, I think you hesitate to call it a speed round, or, but sort of like a quick hit set of questions, I think, right? Yeah, well, I, I didn't want to call it a lightning round because I don't want people to feel pressed for time. But I did write down a few holiday questions, um, and I thought we could sort of go uh, go around the table and and get everyone's input on this. So the first one uh, I'm going to ask, I'm going to start with Sabine. Sabine, and then Alex can weigh in, and then I'll I'll give my answer. Sabine, what is your favorite Christmas cookie? My favorite Christmas cookie is the one that I bake that has brandy and white chocolate and cranberries in it. (laughs) So the Sabine cookie. It's delicious. It's a Sabine special. There you go. Uh, For me, I'd have to say like... um, 
I like it all the time, but of course around Christmas time, it just feels so much more appropriate and great because I'm reminded of how much I like it. But a good old straightforward gingerbread cookie really makes my day around Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. Gingerbread is great, and I've been the uh, lucky recipient of some of the Sabine's uh, cookies Sabine mentions. They're also great, but for my money, I'm going to go with a shortbread. Could Mm -hmm. be a cookie, although my mom always baked it as more of a pie and then cut it up into, like, wedges, which meant you got more shortbread than you would if someone made it into cookies. Um, And that would probably be the one that I would choose. I would say matt's mom makes great shortbread i used her recipe once it was a huge hit so thank you uh matt's mom maybe we should have her on for an episode we should have her on yes <laughs> i'd so, love to chat with her <laughs> it's a very easy thing to make and a funny story i was actually as a student intern once i was asked to bring something to a christmas uh, office potluck i made that shortbread I was accused by some of the other people in the office of having bought something. I think the rules stipulated you were supposed to make it and not buy it. And I was uh, accused of having broken the rules and just bought it, uh, being like a 21-year-old guy. Um, But there was an analysis, and uh, there were like fork marks on the top that I put in, as my mom always did. They looked at them. They said, the fork marks are irregular. This was not made in a factory. He is telling the truth. Wow. And he has actually made made that shortbread. Um, they really are that good. <laughs> and, very, and, very, and very simple. <laughs> Moving on from the food category, or at least the cookie category, what's your favorite holiday drink, Alex? Hmm. I can't even think of one specifically. Um... I don't know. That's good. I'm gonna maybe we'll come back to me. I'll pass it on to Sabine while I think of that. I, you know, because because I find like um one since I'm not much of a a cocktail connoisseur myself. You know, if I you know if I were to end up at Matt's house, for example, or anywhere else, I kind of just drink often whatever's put in front of me. When people are like, "Hey, try this," and it tends to be great because everybody else gets excited about their favorite drinks. But I'm gonna pass on that for just a second, and I'll see if I can come up with something. I'll pass it to Sabine. So the drink, and this is non-alcoholic, sorry, Matt, but the drink that I um, that really signifies Christmas for me is that first peppermint mocha latte that I get from Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just I have one like once a week until Christmas. It just makes me so happy. It sort of reminds me what a great time it is to be alive that I can have. I can purchase such a perfect, amazing, beautiful drink uh, for an amount of money that I can afford. You know, this is great. Modern life is amazing. That's all the feelings that I have when I drink that drink. <laughs> and it makes me feel like Christmas. You know, it's just a Christmassy drink. But I will have to add something else. I used to hate eggnog. I thought it was disgusting. Then I tried it with brandy. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then Matt started aging eggnog. And I had his aged eggnog. And I really liked that. So I've become a eggnog convert. But please don't give me the eggnog you get in a carton. That's what I've always drank, and I always thought that's what it was supposed to taste like. And then I tried real eggnog with liquor in it. Delicious. I, I'm an eggnog convert, too, now. I will say that, um, that like, it also depends on which eggnog out of a carton. Now, I know in front of an eggnog connoisseur like Matt himself, this is a no-no in general. But I will say, I will stick up for some carton eggnog and say that I had the same problem. I tried, like, an, a weird brand at one point. I was like, this is <laughs> disgusting. And then I tried, like, a couple different types, and I have to say I, I'm more into eggnog now, too. And as a cop-out for my favorite drink... Uh, I will go non-alcoholic just real quick and say um, every year when Canada Dry rolls out the uh, special limited time uh, cranberry ginger ale, I always yes. get tricked um, and be like, yes, no, this is limited time. I must get this before it goes away again, forgetting that they do it every year, of course. So I, I, you know, just I, in general, I'd sort of drink the same stuff all year around. But I will say that every Christmas that cranberry ginger ale gets me. Same with the peppermint mocha latte. I I feel like I have to drink as much as I possibly can before the holidays. But here's a tip to all my listeners out there, all my other Starbucks people out there. You can still get it for a few months after Christmas because they have like a lot of the product still. So if you just ask them for it, just be like, do you still have it? They will give it to you. Just try it. Well, that leads really well into my nomination, uh, which you know, both of you mentioned eggnog. I'm not sure I count as a you know eggnog connoisseur because I've actually never had eggnog from a carton. Uh, I don't think I'd had eggnog in any form until I was in my 30s, uh, and then my wife made up a, a batch, uh, and now it's a holiday tradition in our house at least two weeks before Christmas, to make up some of Alton Brown's eggnog recipe. If you Google it, you'll be able to find it. And the key is here to age it. 
So you want to make this eggnog. It's got eggs and milk and sugar, brandy, rum, and uh, whiskey uh, in it. Uh, and you make it, it's fine. You can drink it and it tastes pretty good. But you let it sit for a couple of weeks in your fridge and it gets even better. Hmm. Uh, now, if you're concerned about the idea of consuming raw eggs, uh, rest assured, the alcohol in this will actually kill any bacteria that might be in there. Uh, so it's a, it's a great eggnog recipe. I said it's great after two weeks. It's better after a month. Uh, we've kept it for a year and even two years uh, in the back of our fridge. Um, and uh, and it's not bad after uh, you know that time, but frankly, I think it peaks at about a month. So you get to late November every year. I highly encourage people, look up Elton Brown's eggnog recipe, make up a batch, let it sit in your refrigerator for a couple of weeks. Try it. It's great. And a, a month is the peak point, straight from the source, Matt Bufton. Not a connoisseur because he doesn't do the cartons, but he did skip right from no eggnog to making his own eggnog. So we'll call him an eggnog elitist then. That's what we'll there do. we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you won't catch him in, in the dairy area of Loblaws or anything like that. Yeah, got to be the best or, or yeah. nothing at all. Very Canadian all that right. we said Loblaws. American listeners are like, what? Like, yeah. All right, we're going to do one more question here in our uh, quick hits uh, Christmas questions. Uh, Sabine, it's your turn this time. Is turkey underrated or overrated? Ooh, that's a good one. This is really good. I don't know if it's underrated or overrated. It's delicious. I love turkey. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't, which is why yeah, I ask I if it's underrated. Um, it, I think, okay, so I do think it's underrated. Uh, I think people think it's dry and disgusting, just like this white meat that you've got to put a bunch of gravy on just to eat it. Uh, and I will say I love gravy. I do love my gravy with my turkey, but uh, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is the turkey meat itself is very delicious if cooked correctly. Brine your turkeys, people. Brine them for 24 hours at least, and then your turkey will be perfect and beautiful and delicious and juicy, and you'll be able to have it as a sandwich for many days later, and it will still taste delicious. So I love turkey. And I don't have it a lot. I I do wait for special occasions to have a full turkey because like, I don't know who's going to eat a whole turkey with me other than when my whole family's around. So um, it's a really delicious thing. It is underrated uh, and it does, whether you like it or not, it reminds you of the holidays. <laughs> there you go. For my, for me, I would say, I think it's like simultaneously overrated and underrated. And uh, what I mean by that is like the following. I think like the idea that a turkey is like always needs to be a staple of certain holidays um, is kind of like an overrated idea. I think, you know, you, you talk to some people that are like nothing but turkey. It's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, with a damn good ham either. You know what I yes. mean? So, so it's like, so I think in that way, like, you know, like turkeys are kind of overrated it doesn't always need to be there it's not the be all end all everyone calm down that's my opinion however i think it's uh I, that's so it's overrated that way i think it's underrated though sometimes though because people can take what i just said too far and be way too dismissive of a damn good turkey to sabine's point i think if it's done well and you know it's, it's flavorful and it's get some like stuffing that's well done as well going on in there like there's the whole concept of having a turkey on the holiday plus stuffing you know it's just like if it's if it's done well then at that point, I don't think you could be too dismissive of a turkey scenario. At that point, I think there are a lot of people that underrate it either. So I'm going to say it's bold. I think it's overrated by some as if it's the be-all, end-all. But I also think it's underrated by others. The people are like, I don't like turkey. I don't care about it. It's just okay. Turkey is not just okay if done well. So that's where I stand on that issue. Cool, cool. Yeah, so uh, myself, I, I think it's definitely underrated because I hear a lot of complaints about people who don't actually like turkey that much. I think turkey's great. Uh, I am actually one of those people who will kind of insist on uh, on having it at holiday meals because I'm worried I'm not going to get enough of it if we don't have it. Because as Sabine <laughs> says, right, yeah, 14, 15 pound turkey, I can't whip that up on a Tuesday night. No. So we need to have something going on. But we had uh, some friends and family over for, uh, for dinner last night for a turkey dinner. Uh, we're going to go home for the holidays we'll have a turkey dinner with my wife's family we'll have a turkey dinner at my uh my mom's house um i think this is great i love turkey i think it's severely underrated uh because a lot of people like to bash on it um you know if you think it's too dry maybe you're overcooking a little bit you know i know the government tells you it has to be 180 degrees before it's safe to eat that's not true you can cook it a little bit less than that but if you want to do that that's fine as the bean says as the grave add the gravy it will cover up a multitude of sins turkey's delicious and, and the gravy some... is also key too i think just to stop there for a second I mean, yeah. good gravy is also a key to the whole situation as well i have Absolutely. a question does anybody do christmas goose anymore is this like a charles dickens christmas like do people do a goose anymore because i hear about that in literature a lot like the christmas goose is that a thing 
I mean, I, I can tell you that some people do it because I see them on stores, but you got to go to like a hipster butcher. Goose is expensive. Mm. Uh. So, yeah, you can get a turkey that will feed a largish gathering for probably 40 to 50 bucks, maybe a bit less if you hit the sales right. Uh, a goose, you're going to be looking at like $75, $80 uh, for one that will not do as many people no, um, it's as, uh, as you, know, you would. So, yeah, I think we, we tried one once and it was good but it is expensive and so i suspect that uh you know it's just not as economical um uh, to do but uh, it is fun we uh actually have talked about one dot one christmas splurging doing that traditional goose and having a very charles dickens sort of christmas. very bougie christmas Exactly. And, and as you heard, yeah. so, so, you know, you've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out. Matt has FOMO, fear of missing out on Turkey. So that, that's his situation there. It sounded like from before. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's inaccurate. We have, a, we have a submission from the floor. Sabine would like to do favorite Christmas movies um, mm. because it's her suggestion. We're going to start with you, Sabine. What's your favorite holiday movie? I love the movie Elf. <laughs> so much i have to watch at least once every uh christmas but i'm also a sucker for all the new hallmark films they're terrible and i love them (laughs) yeah for for me i would have to say that um i don't i'm not one of those people that has like a couple oh it's christmas i'm gonna watch these movies over here same thing with halloween i'm not as much that kind of person i'll just watch the movies all year whatever they are um but I do enjoy, and it, it was because it was always on TV when I was younger. I just forget what it was called. And you guys know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it. We have it on like DVD now, and I don't mind popping that in around Christmas. It's like that one where it's like it was all the claymation and it told three stories in the hour. Like there was the Rudolph story and the Santa. Yes. You know, I forget exactly what it's called. And then the snowman singing silver and gold and stuff. That is and the my animation's a little janky. Yeah, like that. That's good stuff. So I, I like that one. If, if people maybe Google search that entire rant, I just did the find what I'm talking about. But it's like it was this Christmas <laughs> special where they had Rudolph. Story, Santa story. There was also, I think, um, what do you call that guy? The um, the Yeti thing. Like, I think that was one of the stories too. Yes. Yeah. The, um, right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that was a good one. Um, and I also love crap during the holidays, like you said, like a, like a good like C list, like bad, yes. terrible, like you know, Christmas story kind of movie. Like I, I I get a good laugh out of those. Get a little bit too much alcoholic eggnog going, and I'm having a yes. good time with that. You know what I mean? Just some. I need some... to. I need to watch a movie where the businesswoman comes back to the small yeah. town and takes over the chocolate factory. Yeah, I need that in my life. And <laughs> and fun fact to our American listeners: a lot of those mass-produced by weird studio uh, holiday movies, where it's like small town girl goes to big city guy or vice versa, whatever, you know, those kinds of stuff. A lot of that stuff is shot either in North Bay, Ontario or Almont, Ontario, yes, actually. Correct. They love shooting in Almont and our prior, I think I also heard once too. So yes, so just a little interesting Canadian fact there. Sometimes uh, small town Georgia is in fact Almont, Ontario. They turned Spark Street in Ottawa into a Hallmark movie, by the way. Oh, there you go. So there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> I'm not even sure I have a good uh, nomination for this section. As I think both of you know, I'm not a huge movie person. Um, and so uh, I often feel I'm lacking in, in both depth and breadth when it comes to movie knowledge. So I'm going to throw out just The Grinch, uh, but not mm-hmm. the live action movie that I've seen clips of here and there. Doesn't seem very good at all, but the classic animation with the nice song and the deep voice, um, I think that's a, it's a really nice uh, Christmas uh, movie or TV show, whatever it is. Um, and uh, we have uh, a young uh, daughter at home, well, too young, but one's way too young for movies. The other one is just starting to get into things like that. I tried to show her The Grinch a little while ago. She thought it was a bit too scary, so mm-hmm. might have to wait till next Christmas uh, before we, we introduce that. That, but uh, that'll be my vote for favorite holiday movie. Fair enough. And I think with that, we are pretty much out of time here. We even skipped having a break this episode. I'm not sure if anyone noticed. So that's that's nice and jam-packed for this holiday spectacular. There's no fluff. We Lots of content there. Folks, I think you know before we formally say goodbye, maybe we'll each go around table and uh, maybe say a little nice sign-off to all our listeners and a thank you. Uh, you know, I'll start with Matt in this case. Uh, Matt, I'm not sure if you have anything you'd like to leave our, our listeners with as we sign off here. Man, that's a tall order. I mean, I've talked about how I'm, uh, you know, quite pessimistic on, uh, on many things that are happening these days. Um, 
I think the best thing that I can say is that, you know, there's still lots of good things in the world. There's lots of community and events out there, um, but you need to find them. Uh, they won't necessarily come to you. So make that effort, make that initiative, you know, bake some Christmas cookies, take them to a neighbor, whatever it is, go caroling. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that uh, all of our listeners will have a really enjoyable and safe holiday season. Sabine. In the spirit of the holidays, I just want to say things that I'm thankful for. I'm really thankful for our, our um, listeners. They have stuck by us all these years. Uh, they've introduced their friends to us because our numbers keep growing, and that's always something beautiful to see. Uh, and thanks for listening to our, you know, a small podcast from Canada. We really appreciate all of you, every single one of you, honestly. Um, and I really appreciate uh, Alex for being such a great host. And I really appreciate Matt for being a great executive producer. And I appreciate Eric. Eric, I know you're out there somewhere listening. Thank you so much for making my life easier. You're wonderful too. <laughs> so it's it's been a really good year for the podcast. I've really enjoyed myself. And thanks everybody for coming along for the ride. Yeah, and I'll just say to wrap it up, I mean, I appreciate both you guys too. And in the holiday spirit, I'm just going to combine both of what Matt and Sabine said and just basically say it's both great statements. I agree with Matt. I think, um, you know, during this time of year especially, but also moving forward, no matter what time of year it is, I really think it's important that we all remember that, um, you know, sometimes there's this sort of community feeling and like cheeriness and just sort of like caring about your neighbor type deal that sort of happens around Christmas. But, you know, try everybody, including myself, I always try to remind myself, you know, this whole idea and that feeling should really extend throughout the entire year if we can. So find community where you can and really cherish it because that's really what matters the most. And as, as Sabine said as well, thank you very much to everybody listening now, but also to everyone who listened to our episodes, uh, whether you were just new this year, just new the previous year or have been with us completely right from the start we appreciate every single one of you and we hope that uh, you think we are continuing to put out great content because we're still loving it so we hope you are too and with that i think we can call that a wrap folks the curious task is a podcast from the institute for liberal studies this episode was produced by alex aragona sabine elchidiak and eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 